Welcome to The New Exchange, a podcast series that explores how everyone has a story to tell. My name is Ken Grandpierre. Today's episode is about exploring how social media can be a force for good. Let's be honest, most of us have been overwhelmed by the constant think pieces of how social media is evil, and I'll say it, that's largely how I felt throughout my adult life. Almost every conversation I have with podcast alum Asia Marotta usually lands back to one of us saying, God, wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to use this? That said, it's important to have your ideas challenged, and today's guest did a brilliant job at doing just that. Katie Leeson is the Managing Director of Social Chain UK, a social media marketing agency that's shifting the way brands utilize social media. Katie also runs an incredible podcast called I Shouldn't Say This But, which has become one of my favorite podcasts that helped in making those pandemic days brighter. What makes the podcast special, apart from having a perfect title, is how Katie shares how the lowest points in her life ultimately led to remarkable experiences. And in doing so, she reminds us of the power that comes from stepping out of our comfort zones. The thing I love about Katie the most is that she never sugarcoats anything. There's always this direct sense of realism that cuts through the fluff that we're usually bombarded with. On today's episode, I chat with Katie about her journey navigating the agency world as a professional woman, the empowering feeling that comes from taking the reins of our mental health, and why humanity needs to be part of these social media platforms. This is the new exchange with Katie Leeson. Enjoy. So it's lovely to finally be chatting with you, especially as like a fellow podcaster. Yeah? Oh, thank you so much for having me. I know we've been chatting a little bit for a while, haven't we? And then the time has come. We are here. Yeah, exactly. And I think what's interesting is that I became familiar with you through your podcast, and then I became aware of Social Chain after the fact, which I think is kind of interesting. And um, yeah, and I imagine what your job entails as a managing director can be difficult to condense into a bio, right? Yeah, I can't really tell you what I do on a day-to-day basis, to be honest. Uh, It differs every day. So um, my, my, my main focus at Social Chain, so for those that don't know, Social Chain is a social media marketing agency and publisher. And my main role within the leadership team at Social Chain is to focus on culture and people and make sure we've got the best place that we can in terms of how we work, where we work, the the support systems that we've got in place to help people. That's so lovely. And, you know, before we go further into your role, what do you think it was initially about social chain that attracted you? Because I think what's intriguing about like where you are at your career is kind of like you're carving it in a way where it's very intentional. You'd think that, wouldn't you? But I yeah. Think <laughs> But the reality has been that none of it's been intentional. So, yeah, I joined Social Chain five years ago in October. And the reason that I joined was because I didn't really know anything about social media marketing. I've worked now in marketing for 15, 16 years. And when I started, it was very much traditional media. So print, radio, outdoor. And I moved a couple of agencies and not had the chance to learn about digital and it was at that point when I thought I really need to start learning about digital if I'm going to future-proof myself for the rest of my career. Social chain popped up out of nowhere really. I think the founder Steve, uh, Stephen started following me on Twitter and then we just started having a chat at that point and the rest is kind of history but I never joined with the intention of becoming managing director. I joined with the intention of learning about social media marketing. So I would have had a knowledge base. And then six months later, I was promoted to MD. Oh my God. I mean, that sounds both exciting and terrifying in equal measure, really. Terrifying. (laughs) Terrifying. Because I was trying to learn. All all I wanted to do was learn. Didn't have a clue what we did. And then just had the responsibility on my shoulders of all these people and all these expectations. yeah, it was tough. It was tough. You see, like, because I hear that, and from the outside, like, I imagine, like, I would imagine how I would feel in that scenario, and I would almost find it to feel intimidating. But was that the case for you at all? Massively. I had to go and see a therapist for it because I was really struggling to own the role. So I had the, I got the title, and everything was fine internally. But for me, when I was in meetings or 
publicly or anything like that I really struggled with owning the fact that I was the managing director of a company and I went to see a therapist about it and that's where we got into understanding which I never knew about imposter syndrome and the internal things that ever that were meaning that I felt like I wasn't right for the role but then also the external pressures of what is put on us like what you see in the media and in the landscape of what you envisage a managing director to be and that then has that impact on your feelings of being capable to do a job and it and having worked through that a little bit has meant that I can think well sod it I'm not an old man in a gray suit sat in a corner of an office which is what my mind but also google images tells you when you type in managing director that's what it's it shows you yeah. But I I am good at X, Y, and Z, and that's what makes social change special as well as that. So it's take it still pops up every now and again. I think that's beautifully proactive in so many ways for like a myriad of reasons, and two big ones specifically. Because one, I think what's very profound in how you described your experience in that is that it kind of also highlights how strange it is that we teach people to consider career advancement in just a very optical sense where you know, we tell people about promotions and obtaining these roles. But what's interesting is that you tell someone that you should like only think about getting a promotion, but it's rare to discuss what that promotion will actually entail. So I think that's kind of interesting that you got to experience that. Completely. You're constantly chasing up what is the traditional career ladder or what you think you should be chasing up. But the reality, I think, is you should always follow the thing that gives you the most enjoyment. And, and obviously can enable you to live in a lifestyle that you, you need or want to. But if you're not happy doing that, you'll never be satisfied with your work. And we're in work for such a long time. Yeah. But I think you need to find, really understand your own values and your own drivers in order to find a fulfilling role within a company that might not be going up that career ladder. It might be becoming a specialist in the area that you absolutely love. Completely. And another thing, like a secondary point that I found profound in a I grew up a bit in uh, London and throughout my adult life, I've gone to the UK loads. And I bring that up because I feel like I have a bit of insight in the context of like how culturally therapy is something that's only just now really getting respect and understanding. Like maybe in like the last, like, I don't know, six to seven years where I feel like as a nation, the UK has kind of like a lot of citizens have kind of turned their opinions around on it, where I remember being in the nineties and early two thousands and just, People had a very narrow and kind of like almost negative, unfoundedly negative point of view towards therapy and like what psychology could do. I bring that up because I'm curious because I imagine you having grown up in that. What was it like for you to actually take the step? It was terrifying again. I think not that I've ever been told that it's a failure, but you feel like if you've got to get help for something like that, then you feel like you've probably failed a little bit. But the reality now that I've been is that I understand myself and my drivers better than I ever would if I hadn't gone to therapy but it did take me a while to get there because I thought I don't need help I've not been through any trauma there's nothing that I've really experienced that means that I'm gonna have to see a therapist because I think in probably in the UK I've not really looked into it too much but is that fear of or that feeling that therapy is only for you if you've had something tra- really traumatic happen to you. And also the way it's set up is like it's incredibly difficult to get it through the NHS, which means then that you have to go private, which is also not the way that we usually deal with health problems. You usually go to your doctor and it's sorted. So there's a number of factors, I think. But yeah, it, it, it was a tricky one to get into. Yeah. I've done it before, and the thing that I found very, um, like a like a attribute of therapy that I've taken with me in my life, and recognizing what it is, like the functionality that it could serve, is that when I did it, I realized that within that space, and contrasting with like natural everyday life, even with like friends and family, that there strangely isn't a lot of space in your everyday life to just talk about what you're feeling, because no matter how your life is structured. Even if you have like really beautiful friends and really beautiful coworkers and that, on some level you you find yourself playing roles. And then when you get to go to therapy, just talk about how you're feeling. It is something that just really does um, 
it's a very stark contrast. That's at least something I found when I did it. Definitely. And I think therapists aren't there. They've got, like your friends and family can be amazing, but there's always an element of their best interests for you at heart with the advice they give you or the support. Whereas a therapist is completely neutral, doesn't know anything else about the situation or the people or whatever else you're talking about. So you get that complete, just someone who will give it you straight or help you get to the answer straight because they don't tell you what to do. They, they help you work it out yourself, which I think is also important. Yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, going back into like uh, the managing director role, something I'm like, there's a couple of things I'm curious about in regards to it. One of those things is that, like, as you said, it's not the type of thing you can like put in a bio and like, like condensing and like every day is different. But what do you think's been one of the responsibilities that's like really surprised you as your journey within that has gone on? I think the amount of time that I spend on people and making sure that the teams are happy and people problems and knowing like offering support to people when they're going through something whether that's through work or whether that's personal I think the people side of it is the bit that I'm most surprised at but is actually the bit that takes the most time up and I probably get the most value out of because again I don't know what you think if you think of the term managing director what what sort of pops up in your head that's a really good question funnily enough i would say weirdly enough words like tactical and like strategic but like if i think about like it from a functional aspect even that word in itself functional goes above everything else like it seems very from the outside i'd imagine being almost very tactile and almost like that's why i think it's interesting about how you said people first i would almost imagine it's detached from everything in a way weirdly which is exactly where my and it still happens today where I am pulled in two different directions of feeling like I can't do this job versus I can do this job because that feeling of it being more strategical and knowing everything about the business you're in and trying to go out there and win new business and make sure everything's commercially viable and all that sort of stuff isn't the bits that I'm very good at <laughs> but the other bits <laughs> the other bits in building people building the right teams and building bringing the right people together and create an environment to get the most out of those people is what I'm good at. So, but they're not the bits that you automatically think of when you think of managing director. But I think there's a big value in that. And like that skill that you have that can't even be, that can't be understated in its importance or even overstated really, like in both senses, because essentially a key function of your job is to be a leader and to be a person where other people come to you for your input and your point of view of things. And like, tell me, when you look back on your life prior to social change, do you feel that leadership always came to you naturally in a way? Uh, oh, good question. I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. I think part of the role that I did before I joined social change was I was helping with the new business and marketing for an, for an agency. So naturally, you have to kind of lead and bring people on a journey rather than lead. So in yes. that role, I was having to get a group of people whose day-to-day jobs wasn't to do this pitch. So pitch had come in, I'd organise all the times, I'd sort out making sure we'd ask all the questions we needed to ask. But I had to bring everyone together to do that. And at a time when they've probably got their day-to-day client work that they, that they want to do. So it was a bit like herding cats at times, <laughs> but probably, yeah, that leadership thing came from there. And I've learned a lot about how I, my basis is always how would I want to be treated in this situation? That's beautiful. And I think I should point out as well, like, um, so in my experience, I've had this really kind of a weird career where I've kind of gone through a lot of different areas and I'm grateful for it because I feel like I've had a window into um, the whys and the hows of like how a lot of different kind of areas function, like studios and different types of agencies and corporate environments. And I'm mostly speaking with an American perspective, but when I've traveled and worked at other companies on a freelance basis, I feel like these are things I've noticed. And I feel like within an agency context, and I think it's fascinating to bring this up. I think what makes agencies differ from like traditional corporate environments is like a lot of the times people who work at agencies have the why at the forefront of their mind. Like it's a very big thing of like, yes, I work at this place, but 
have an awareness of why I'm doing it and that's important to me. And I wonder, would you say that's kind of similar in the UK as well? In like that kind of agency world? Kind of. <laughs> the thing with media and um, marketing agencies, a lot of people in the UK tend to fall into the career without really knowing that it's, a, that it's an option. So our school system and university system isn't that it doesn't really highlight the roles that are available in our world that we are now operating. So it's interesting when you speak to people when they start, they usually they've usually done some sort of English degree or philosophy or something like that. Because the crux of what we do is understanding people and how to reach them and how to do creative that's gonna make them feel something. Yeah. So you don't tend to get people in the industry who have always known that that's what they want to do. Um, but when they're in it, they absolutely love it. And they, that's their purpose and they know why. But then sort of midway through your career, you tend to get a bit of a, a crisis where it's a bit like, why am I doing this? Why am I just making rich people richer? What's the point? We're just fueling that sort of capitalist society, um, which is why we tend to try and help as much. We, we had something a couple of years ago where it was called The Pledge, um, and we would help charities and um, clients that were doing good but didn't have the budget to use social chain. We would use our time to give away to help them be better, just to sort of, helpful circle to make sure we were doing some good in the world as well do you know what's really interesting about how you put that it's actually very similar to here in the states and how you described it with um how like our like the education system doesn't really teach people that these jobs are available i think maybe what's a difference here is that weirdly and i I think it's partially due to things like netflix and like the different types of uh, shows that exist and also um like just the internet in general but in a weird way, the word agency here in the States and media, it's kind of become this thing that people view as alternative to uh, corporate. And what's interesting, obviously, is that there are a lot of agencies that function like corporate environments, but it's almost like people have this idea that um, I, I could get an English degree and I could get a philosophy degree and that's an option for me. But I think it's one of those things that it's seen as like a door but what's behind the door isn't necessarily always understood. But yeah, it's interesting. I think here in the States, there's a, like an awareness, but almost on a very surface level. In a way. It's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, I did, actually did get just ask, have you been to the States before? I have, yeah. I've been to New York a couple of times because we've got our New York office. So I've been out there to see the team. I have um, been to, I've done a full trip around LA, um, California. I did a road trip, loved LA. And then Vegas as well, I've done before. So uh, a few places, the hot spots, not a proper tour. Yeah. Ve- I've been to Vegas before for work, and I- I've always said that Vegas is one of the weirdest. It's kind of like, have you ever seen Star Wars? I feel like Vegas is like the cantina, but just outside. <laughs> it's so time. weird. It's like, I love people watching. It's one of my favorite things to do. And I don't think there's many better places to people watch than <laughs> Vegas. <laughs> That is completely true. Um, so your podcast, um, I shouldn't say this, but is a real gem in the world of podcasting. Um, each episode evokes the title with a sense of honesty. And my favorite thing is I can feel like, as I've been listening to it, because I've been listening to it a lot throughout the pandemic, I feel like its best quality is that I can feel you growing as a person as I listen to it, which honestly, I can't say about many series. Um, would you say that the title of the show has become like almost a guiding light when you're putting an episode together? Yeah, definitely. Oh, well, thank you. That's so kind. I shouldn't say this, but started <laughs> really funny. <laughs> so Stephen Bartlett, who's the founder of Social Chain, um, incredibly famous now, is on um, Dragon's Den in the UK. Um, he He's probably the person that like personal brand he wrote the rule book him and Gary V were always competing against each other and when I got the role as MD he was like right you're gonna have to do a personal brand I was like don't want to do it I don't want to be in front of camera I don't want to be filmed I don't want to be because he had a daily vlog and I always refused to be in the background of it I was like don't put me on camera I'm not doing it but then very smart he knew what my drivers were and he knew that if he set me a challenge I would try and do it because I don't like to fail. And he put it as one of my KPIs 
to build a personal brand. And the way that I felt most natural doing it was to start writing articles for LinkedIn. So I started writing a few articles for LinkedIn, but I'm actually really bad at reading and writing. It takes me a long time. And I, I realized that it wasn't going to be the thing that would tick that box. So we started exploring podcasts and I'd got a bit of traction from talking openly about imposter syndrome and feeling like I was being honest about what the reality is of someone in a young female MD in, in the working world and what it, what it actually means. And uh, we couldn't think of a title. We didn't know what to do with it. And I went to the toilet, <laughs> I went to the toilet for a wee <laughs> and the, the name just popped in my head as soon as I wasn't thinking about it. I was like, it should be, I shouldn't say this book. And then I came out and I told the team, and they're like, oh my God, yeah, definitely should be, I shouldn't say this book. So yeah, I try and talk about topics that have happened to me or things that I've been through that I think will help other people whilst also talking about things that are going on that social chain at the moment that can help me get my head around it and understand things a little bit better. So that's where the topics come from. There's so much to unpack there. And like, I mean, I was already fascinated, but like hearing all that leads to my fascination even more because I can't think of many situations where I mean, obviously, from a professional level, it can only benefit any apparatus that you having a better understanding of yourself on a personal and professional level is only a positive thing and only a helpful thing. But I can't think of many businesses that would have that, like in the foresight, like understanding the importance of that and knowing that making you build a personal brand can only have positive benefits and you actually embracing that. Like, that's kind of like a perfect storm that. Mm could have actually gone completely the other way you know <laughs> I could have gone very wrong <laughs> yeah. it still could. let's be honest it still could I could say something that I really shouldn't say at some point and then we will be in trouble but so far I've done okay <laughs> yeah because I think what's interesting for um the podcast and what I love about doing stuff like this is that I'm sure people listening who are unfamiliar will go check it out and because we're talking about it and I think what's interesting is that because I've definitely gone into the rabbit hole of like listening to different companies, podcasts, and even like some solo entrepreneurs. And I feel like a lot of people struggle with the aspect of conveying themselves while also talking about a company's mission and making it sound authentic. But you do it somehow where it's just like, it never feels like I'm listening to a social chain ad. Like it never feels mm. that way, which mm. I mean, I don't know if it should or not, but I, I, that's something I love about it. I try really hard for it not to, but then on the flip side of that, I always try really hard for whatever I talk about. So any topics, if it's related to the way that we could work better or um, something that's going on in the working world, I try and make sure that we can either implement it pretty quickly after I've talked about it, or we've already done it with success. Because one of the things that I don't want it to be is something where I just say something and then the people in social chain are just like rolling their eyes going, God, she's talking about that again, but she doesn't actually mean it. And that is probably one of my biggest fears. Yeah, you don't want it to be a vanity thing. It has to be, there has to be actionable things within it. Yeah. 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 You know, it's funny because I actually had to hear to talk, ask you about, you kind of already went into it, but like when I was like reading more about you, I thought it was so hilarious on your website. It says, I didn't want to do this podcast. And I think that (laughs) stuck out to me a lot because funnily enough, uh, when I started podcasting, it came from having a long time of not wanting to give it a go because my background is as a photographer and also in journalism. And in the last, like, I would say a decade, I was going to say less than a decade, but honestly, it's been a decade now where a lot of journalists have learned that the best way to like get jobs and to get attention is to build up personal brands. And it's something I understand and I um, appreciate, but it's definitely in the States, at least it's become a thing where it's almost kind of, um, it's kind of clicky. It almost feels like school in a way. It's, it's very strange seeing how it's evolved over time. But what happened for me is I was like working for a bunch of magazines and I got to a point where I really hated, um, <laughs> I really hated uh, transcribing. It was like part of my life, but I grew to a point where I hated it. And I actually spent um, a week with the Irish musician, uh, Lisa Hannigan. And it was a situation where I was writing a piece on her 
and she's so funny as a person that I realized that my writing skills aren't good enough to convey her humor. So I started a podcast just so I could tape her humor and have it shared with the world. And yeah, it started from there. And it's interesting because I bring that up because it's grown as a passion for me. It wasn't initially a passion, but I think another thing that made me hesitant towards podcasting is noticing how the way everyone attempts to do one makes it almost like a fair weather thing that isn't really thought out. And even just talking mm-hmm. to you the last couple of minutes, it shows that you put a lot of thought into it. So do you feel like the initial hesitance that you had is kind of dissipated a bit? Like it's kind of like eroded as time has gone on? Yeah, my, my thing was always like, why would anyone want to listen? Like what value would they get out of me talking? But it's the feedback, you know. If I talk about something, some of the harder hitting topics that I've covered, like I talked about my miscarriage, I talked about uh, antidepressants and my own depression. And I've talked about things that are quite difficult to talk about to your friends and family, never mind in public. But I just, I've lost that fear of talking about it because I've seen if I talk, if, if, if I've experienced something that's not very well discussed, if someone else, one person, just one person can get some value out of the stuff that I'm saying um, and feels like it's helped them, then I've done my job properly. So that's the big thing for me. I'll only continue it if I feel that there's a value with it. And, you know, it's interesting you say that because, um, I mean, we're recording this in the summer. People hear this months in advance, but I bring that up because fairly recently you released an episode where uh, the title was along the lines of like, I'm struggling to take my own advice. And I, I was listening to that a couple um, days ago. And it was one of those things where I've been feeling that way for like a while, especially as this pandemic has been just continuing on in such a slow, sloggy way. Like, I mean, both of our countries are technically out of it, at least uh, mm-hmm. legally speaking, but obviously we're still in the thralls of it. But you know what? It's in, like the way you said that just now. One, just seeing that as like a title on like my podcast feed and then listening to your words, it was helpful just to hear another human being say that. Good. Good. So it's doing its job. Um, yeah. it, that's, that's exactly why uh, that I do it. I wouldn't do it if I didn't feel like it was adding value to anybody. Did I think it would get to where it's got to? No. <laughs> I, I didn't. Not, oh God, no. Never in a million years. Have you ever been stopped on the street? Yeah, it's weird. Not very often. Yeah. Not very often. But it has happened a few times where I've been stopped and been like, I love your podcast. or Because I've got quite a big following on LinkedIn, so I get quite a few people saying, oh, I'll follow you on LinkedIn. And um, it's weird. Yeah. Really weird. It's interesting with the UK, because I know a couple of people who do podcasts, and I've had some talks with friends about it. And it's wild because podcasting is a thing that has become more in uh, the public consciousness, but it's still a niche thing to the degree that, and I think it also has to do just by the context of uh, population size of the UK as a whole, but it's like for as many prominent podcasts as they are, it's not like an absurd number really. So it's like, mm. I think that adds to the specialness of it. It's like if someone's listened to your podcast in the UK, it's almost like they're part of like this kind of club. In a, in a good way. Yeah, and maybe I should start a club. I shouldn't say this book club. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, look at the title. How many people can say they have a great title for a club, yeah? <laughs> I know. Yeah, no, it is funny. I think we've been doing the podcast a long time now. I think it's been a... Oh, God, I don't even know when we start. COVID's just made me lose all track of actual time frames, but it's a couple yeah. of years easy, if not three. Um, oh, wow. So it's been going a long time. Um, consistently as well we had a bit of a break here and there but pretty much consistently and I think it's because we got there at the right time as well we started it at a, a good amount of time to like get into the groove of it and yeah uh, I enjoy it I do enjoy it now that's one of the things I wanted to bring up as well because a major reason that I continue podcasting is that and it's interesting so this series it will be a year old in August the previous series I ran went on for like around three and a half years and this wow. is like a evolution of that. But um, a major reason for me that I continue podcasting is that I found, my, I found that I learned something about myself with each talk that I do with someone. Like 
even on a subconscious level. And um, like, I think that's what's so beautiful about this podcast itself, like that I'm doing, like the, the main essence is it, of it is that the best lessons in life that we learn is that we learn through other people's experiences. Like that's the functionality of having other humans around is that you can be confused and unsure about what's going on in your own life, but then you hear someone else talk about their life and it makes more sense to you about what's even happening in your own life. And I wonder like, what are some surprising things you feel that podcasting has taught you about yourself? Oh, that I'm not on my own with my crazy weird thoughts about the world and myself and how I approach things. But I think the big thing that I get out of it is one of my, I've been spending quite a lot of time. The first series of the podcast, all of the guests that I had on talked so much, every single one about values and knowing your own values, not the values of the company, not the values of the school you're at, not your values of your parents, your own values, the things that give you that real fire. And I hadn't done that. So I am, what, I'm 37 now, so 35 or whatever age I was. I hadn't even thought about what my own values were and what my drivers were. And in doing that now, I've learned that the podcast actually fuels one of those. So one of my values is learning. I feel most fulfilled if I feel like I'm continuously learning, which makes sense when you hear this, when you go back to the story about why I started Social Chains, because I wanted to continue to learn about the world that we worked in. And the podcast allows me to do that because those chats that I have with people, if I've got a guest or if I'm exploring something that's going on in my own life or at social chain, I'm learning a little bit as well at the same time. So I think the biggest thing has been a the values piece in understanding myself better. Yeah, I feel like that echoes a lot of what I was saying, because it's just like it's weird that like I don't know when it happens. Maybe it has to do with just the fact that, you know, after you leave uni we're forced to go into the workforce and it's kind of like we're kind of forced to just go, 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 go and build these lives and, you know, get money and, you know, that we find ourselves in a place where it's just like being able to actually sit and take stock and think about what life is. We're not able to really do until it becomes proactive. It's, it's very, um, I feel like so many people can relate to that. So many. And I, but I think it goes back to school and education before you go to uni. I think we are all so individually driven around things that make us the, our best selves. And I don't think, especially in the UK, that there is even a consideration for individual values. And I'm a big believer in social media is, can be the worst place in the world, but it's got a lot of potential to be the best place. And because you are the master of your own destiny on social, you see more of what you're viewing. If you're viewing stuff that doesn't fall in line with your values, or on the flip side of that, if you are seeing stuff that is in line with your values, you can actually be a better person because you're fueling those values by what you see online because of the volume of the content. On the other side, if you're viewing stuff that makes you sad, you're going to see more of it. And I don't think it's ever really talked about enough. I agree with that. And it's it's actually quite beautiful that you brought that up because that was going to be the next thing I wanted to explore with you because it's interesting, yeah, because I, well, one of the big reasons why I wanted to talk to you apart from loving the podcast is that you've become one of my favorite people to follow on social media. And I think what's fascinating is that this has happened during a time where I found myself growing to kind of hate social media a bit. But I think in like what I take away from the way you post is that it feels like you want people to engage with social media in a more nuanced way. And you kind of talked about it just now, but can you go a little bit further? Because I think that's like a really fascinating thing to kind of explore. Yeah, it, it's something that I find so it's hard working in the world of social. And I know that it's not always the best place to be. And we compare and we judge and we fall into traps. However, 95% of the online population use social media. So it's not going to go anywhere anytime soon. And actually the beauty of what we got out of social during the pandemic was that connectivity to people that we were isolated from. The lovely thing is actually that that reason for going on social is actually continued post pandemic. So people are using social as a way of keeping connected to people. Also, as I mentioned 
with the algorithms, you get served stuff that you look at. So they don't know as, a, as an algorithm, as a piece of tech, it doesn't know that if that piece of content makes you happy, makes you more fulfilled or makes you sad. All it knows and its main um, objective is to keep you on that platform longer. So if you're on Instagram, they want you to see more of it. So you stay on Instagram longer rather than jumping off and going on TikTok. So you don't jump to competitor. And um, I think if people were more intentional about the things that they followed and the things that they viewed with help, then we would all be a lot more informed because there are so many people with authority who are talking about amazing things on social media that you could get a lot of learning from. I touched on TikTok then, but I think TikTok is my favorite space right now because there's a whole stream about learn with TikTok. Mm. And if you go in there, you can learn, like, not only are these people, young people creating short videos with using their own cameras and editing functions, like that creativity level is insane. But also the learn with TikTok stream, you can learn about mortgages, you can learn about how to use Excel spreadsheets better. And that isn't talked about. The thing that we all see is the negativity and the bad side of social. And I think it needs to be readdressed in how we talk about it. Well, even the way you said it just now about TikTok, I mean, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm definitely guilty of being one of those people that just thought only dances and reaction things existed on there. So you just educated me there and It's amazing. It's an amazing space. You can learn so much on TikTok. And it's, it's evolving as well. They're definitely trying to push that as a space to be positive and educational. And yeah, it's, it's exciting. The way you talk just now about the way people can engage with Instagram and like that uh, specifically and like the aspect of like curating what's being presented to you, it's kind of reflective to me of like how you post, like what I enjoy about your posts, because I think it's really interesting that you share a lot of insights that there are positive like ways to go about social media, but there's also a bit of like a tough love approach that you have. And I think what I love is that there's a, like, this overarching tone of like, come on, everyone, let's get real, where it's not that we're suspended in animation. We can actually engage with these things. And I think what really surprises me is just like, it's very genuine when I see that you post that. And that's kind of like, kind of run contrary to how I felt about a lot of other people and how they post. And there's an authenticity that you have that kind of cuts through the mess of the world. I wonder, obviously, it's been a big part of like, you know, the podcast as a whole, but for you, when it comes to how you use social media, how important has it been for you to realize that you have a voice? Because you brought up earlier about how having a personal brand of that, that was something that was very proactive, but having a voice can even extend beyond social media. Yeah, which I still don't know. When you say that, I get a bit like, oh, have I? I don't know if I have. And what you said there is very kind. I think I love to back up and I have to have backs with anything that I say. So I won't really say anything unless I know that, that I've looked at like the psychology behind it or um, I understand a little bit more than just making a statement. So that's probably why you think it's like, and I, I like the fact that you say it's firm but fair because yeah. that's the way I lead as well. If you work at social chain, if something goes wrong, I'll help you understand how, how it's gone wrong and I'll be really clear on it. I'm not fluffy. I will make sure that things get better, but I will support you to do that rather than not. And it's interesting that you say that comes through on my social feed as well, because I never really thought of it that way. But yeah, it's mainly because I, I like to make sure I've got things backed up. But I've never really thought of myself as a voice. It just happens. Things just happen naturally. And I just go with the flow. <laughs> <laughs> I There's think... no plan. There's just no plan. And maybe there should be. I think the way you conveyed that, though, um, and I have a couple more questions for you, by the way, but before I get into those, I think the way you conveyed that is um, like something that pinged into my head a couple minutes ago when you said like how with doing the podcast and people kind of stopping on the street, it was it was hard for you to contextualize the idea that someone would go out of their way to listen to you. That's something that I find even myself of doing uh, this podcast as well. But I've experienced people reaching out saying they've enjoyed it. And it's like, it's weird, I think, because you can get so in your head about how you're putting across your thoughts and your feelings out into the world that on a weird level, even though it should seem obvious, it's almost surprising that people can't have reactions to it. I know, because you do it in your own, especially in COVID, you're like in your own house, just talking. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you forget. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, that also comes nicely into what I want to ask you about next, because, you know, coming out of this pandemic after a year of largely working from home, it's worked well for some people, but it also didn't work for some others. And I wonder, how did you find motivating your team as a leader? It's been hard. I can't lie. I think the last 12 to 18 months has been a really tricky time to be a leader. Part just on so many levels, and it could be a podcast on itself. Probably could be a novel. The the, but it's it's the difficult thing has been, especially at Social Chain. We had such a focus on culture pre-pandemic, but a lot of that culture was focused on what we could do in the office together. So as soon as that central space is taken away, it makes it really hard, and I put a lot of pressure on myself to try and build a culture virtually and it's just not possible everyone's trying to deal with their own things the reality is everyone was just trying to get by and get through and that was quite tough I think now we're getting to the point where I've spent quite a lot of time in the last few months trying to create a new culture manifesto for social chain that taps into what made it special before, but also understands and takes into consideration what people are looking for from the world of work yeah. now and in the future. And how can we how can we support that? How can we elevate work? How can we do that? So I'm presenting that actually this week to the agency and I'm really excited about it because I've tried really hard to understand everyone's point of view because I know from my own thing, I get more done when I'm at home. But on the flip side of that, I don't have those moments where I can just have a quick conversation and solve a problem really quickly. Um, and my biggest concern about working from home is the next generation of leaders that are coming through, having started their career or just starting out in their career and having to be at home in a one bedroom flat in Manchester in the UK. And not building networks that I have benefited from in my career. So 16 years in media, just the people that start at the same time, similar age group to me, that we now have these relationships where I can ask them questions. One of my, one of my really close friends is one of the, um, is like head of brand, uh, brand marketing or something like that at TikTok. So if I've got a question about TikTok, I know where I'm going to go. I don't have to like try and find people and build relationships. I just go to my friend. And it concerns me about these big tech companies that are saying that they're going to go to full remote working. Because one, I think that they're letting their younger staff members down. And two, I think long term, it's going to be tricky for them to recruit. I, uh, I mean, I think that's so true. And like, you know, it might sound like what I'm about to bring up. It might sound like it's a, an aside, but I think it's interesting how so in my world, it's largely music with uh, live music and uh, like concert halls and festivals. And I work intimately with a lot of musicians. And I think what's fascinating about what you brought up is like this kind of issue is kind of coalesced even into that world where something that's very important for musicians to tour outside of the context of financials is that it might seem obvious, but it's like you make a song and then you play it live and then the reaction of the audience, whether it's conscious or subconscious, very much dictates how you approach that song and even future songs, and even approaches how you present yourself and how you consider the vibe that you're putting in a room. And even if you're not putting a vibe in a room, I remember talking to um, Lauren from the band Churches, the Scottish band Churches, about how touring for their first album was so informative about how they wanted to approach being a band in their second. And I bring that up because I think after a year of seeing so many musicians doing live streams, it's going to be interesting to see some musicians go into the real world and real concert halls and have to face that. And I think it's also indicative of what you brought up. It all goes that by the end of the day, that human interaction is something that regardless of its context is invaluable. It's the same for the creative world, exactly what you just said in our agency world, coming up with creative ideas. You can't get that feedback as much as you can if you're in the same room you can't get that bounce and yeah I think I don't know about you but when have you been to your first live gig I have uh I have well 
I, I was kind of spoiled by my first live gig back was at Foo Fighters. They played here at Madison oh. Square Garden. And it that's was, a pretty good one. Yeah, it was a good one. It was a fully, the first fully vaxxed concert in, Amer- in uh, New York. And it was good. You know, what's interesting is that you came, I came across uh, one of two types of people. Either people who were like kind of reserved and kind of trying to kind of gauge how to even be in that kind of setting. Or it was uh, people who were so enthusiastic that there was no barriers of just like them yelling and like kind of shooting spit into the air. I mean, that's a visual, but yeah, it was it was interesting being in that environment. I was like mostly on the former camp, like I was kind of reserved, but I came out of my shell a bit as the show went on. I know you can't not though when the Foo Fighters are playing. Yeah, I've seen I've seen them a couple of times. They're amazing. I. I don't know how I feel about it all yet, with us because today I know when this goes out it won't be, but today is the day that the UK what they're hailing Freedom Day. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure. I'm not. I I don't know how I feel about rushing to get some like out and about yet. Not that I'm scared about it because I've had COVID and I've had one vaccine. I'm going to have my next vaccine hopefully at the end of this week. But it's just the volume of people yeah. <laughs> around that many people. <laughs> it's It's been strange here in New York because New York has been open, like, I want to say a little bit since, largely since like May. And it's one of those things where technically a lot of businesses don't have to have strict rules, but a lot of like restaurants and like the movie theaters, I've been to a couple movies and like a lot of the venues as well are still enforcing the rules because there's this understanding that even if it's not being mandated by the government, the optics still needs to be there to make people feel comfortable to some degree. Yeah, yeah. Which is hard when you're trying to run a business as well. Yeah. God, it's so strange. It'll be interesting to see. um, It's fascinating because we're still in this, like, in this mid-summer bit where the pandemic is still, like, kind of at the forefront of our minds. It'll be interesting when people are hearing this, like, in autumn, if the pandemic's even on people's minds anymore. Like, it'd be kind of funny if they'll be like, oh yeah, that was such a long time ago, this thing. Yeah, I know. It's going to be so interesting to watch human behavior post when the when things die down and we yeah. can start new normal, which is a term I hate, but I it's hate true. That term too. Ugh. There, was, um, there was one more thing I wanted to explore with you. And thanks again for your time. I'm glad we finally got to do this chat. It's been... No, it's great. Really Something I really want to explore with you is how... And we touched about this, we touched upon this a lot in the start, but I think it's really crucial to explore at times like how surprisingly nonlinear a career path could be. And I think what's interesting is that people could look at what you do and initially think there's a point A and a point B to like a great job. But just from hearing this talk, people can realize that that doesn't exist. There is no point A to point B. And the truth is the working world especially is quite unpredictable. And I wonder, like, what would you say is an experience of your career that you hold dear that would probably surprise most people? Oh, good question. I think I just took learning opportunities. The main theme throughout my career has been learning opportunities. So not one moment, but every point where I've made a decision to do a change or a pivot has been around something that I've been wanting to learn more about. So very, even from the very start, I did a week's work experience unpaid at an agency in just outside of Manchester. And that was because I wanted to learn before I jumped into applying for grad scheme jobs. But the funny thing about that was that I was working with someone that then knew someone at the agency I was applying for as a grad job, and they gave me a great reference even after a week. And then every other job after that, I have moved either in the company that I was in, like sidestep, or um, moved to another company as an opportunity to learn something that I felt was interesting to me. So moved internally when I was at Mediacom from doing press, I was buying space in magazines and newspapers into this new business and marketing role that helped me learn then about how the company was run and how commercials were made and how um, the legal side of it, I found it fascinating. And then it was at that point then when I was like, right, okay, I've learned about that. Now I need to learn about social. So I don't think there's any one, 
a point but it's it has always and I, I hadn't really thought about that again until I started thinking about my values but it, it always has been I'm ready to learn about something new now and it's that challenge that pushes me forward that's been my biggest takeaway with uh doing this talk with you by the way where it's like I feel like it's so it's been very reflective within um your podcast but I think it's very powerful to hear it in such a pointed way that regardless of where you are at your career even if you're like at the highest level you could be you can only benefit from like willingly wanting to learn more like that could be such a crucial part of just your existence as a person yeah if that's one of your drivers 100 percent. i never the plan was never to get to managing director when i was little i didn't know what i wanted to be there was never a point where I was like, right, okay, I'm doing this and I'm going to be MD. Never thought that it, it just didn't even cross my mind. But the behaviours that I've done, the way that I've gone about it has led to that point. So I always joke, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> what did you want to be when you were a kid? No clue. Absolutely no idea. No, no. I wanted to be an astronaut. Did you? That's cool. Yeah. No, I didn't have it. I had nothing. Absolutely zilch. No idea. That I wanted to be an astronaut, and then when I was like 16, like here in the States, when you're like around 16, they have the talks with you about like um, in high school of like what your future can look like. And I remember telling like the guidance counselor, astronaut, and we looked into it like on like Wikipedia was out at the time. She like went on Wikipedia, and it was one of those things that reading that I was like, well, clearly that's not gonna happen. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for checking this out. Be sure to subscribe to The New Exchange via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you stream podcasts. Until next time, thank you for listening.